0: When it comes to ADHD, there's a lot of misinformation out there. On top of that, women are often misdiagnosed and go untreated for years, only adding to the problem. In this episode, I chat with Diane Wingert, a coach who specializes in ADHD to uncover what it is really about and how women can come to terms with this often confusing disorder. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. The Mental Health and Wealth Show. Thank you so much for listening to The Mental Health and Wealth Show. This is host Melanie Locker. And first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are brave and amazing for being here. Getting ready to listen to a show about mental health and money is not easy. And I know you are ready for these amazing conversations. But before you listen, I want to let you know that all of my content is based on my own personal experience with mental health and money, as well as the experiences and expertise of my guests. I'm not a mental health professional or a financial professional, so content should not be considered professional, medical, or financial advice. As a trigger warning, please note that content on the show may include sensitive topics around mental health and suicide. So if you're currently in distress please get in touch with a professional by texting HOME to 741-741. Thank you so much and enjoy the show. This is Melanie Lockhart, host of the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Today, we are covering a topic that needs some more attention, and that topic is ADHD in women. I'm interviewing Diane Wingert, who is a former UCLA-trained psychotherapist-turned-mindset-and-productivity coach for female entrepreneurs with ADHD traits. Her mission is to mentor women who are driven but distracted to overcome their limiting beliefs and disempowering habits to create an ADHD-friendly business and lifestyle. Thanks so much for being here.
1: I have really been looking forward to this, and I love your little intro where this is something that needs more attention. Did you get that, more attention?
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Yes, it definitely does need some more attention, and I'm super excited to chat with you about this topic. So, I wanted to dive right in. You know, you are a coach, you are a former psychotherapist that specializes in supporting women with ADHD. I wanted to just talk about, you know, women are often not diagnosed or they are misdiagnosed because symptoms present differently in women than they do in men. And this is something I just recently learned, actually. So I'm so curious to hear more from you. Can you tell me how ADHD presents in women?
1: This is my jam. Well, ADHD was actually on the cover of Time magazine. And for anyone old enough to have ever even heard of Time magazine, it was very popular weekly, sort of a news style magazine on the newsstand. And ADHD was being diagnosed in little boys exclusively in the 90s. I happened to be in grad school at UCLA at that time. And so I was working with little boys with ADHD. What was interesting to me is as I started to meet some of their parents, I asked my professors and supervisors, you keep telling me that this is outgrown, right? And they said, yes, this is our understanding that uh, little boys have this, about 5% of little boys have this, they outgrow it by the time they're an adolescent or an adult, and we don't find this in women. I'm like, I, I beg to differ. I mean, I'm, I was just a student, but the reality was I was meeting all kinds of adults and moms, and I said, I don't think... I think we've missed this over the years. What I've come to understand, Melanie, is that there's a huge gender bias across the board in the field of psychiatry and really all of mental health, because all of the models, (laughs) all, all of the models that we use for diagnosing and treating are based on men and i happen to be married to a pediatrician who likes to say children are not small adults and i like to say females are not males without testicles we have completely <laughs> different we have completely different biology completely different physiology completely different way of thinking, perceiving the world, responding to our emotions, and the way we experience ADHD is different. Let me tell you the, the down low. The reason why, bottom line, we don't see ADHD in girls and we don't discover it until many years later, it comes down to two things. One, little boys with ADHD are heavy on the H. And for those who aren't familiar with the four little letters, we're talking about attention, deficit, hyperactivity disorder. Well, boys, especially young boys, tend to be heavy on the H. So they're physically hyperactive. They move around a lot. They have a hard time sitting still. They push, they shove, they don't take their turn, they blurt things out. So naturally, they are a management problem in the classroom, which is where the focus really begins. Teachers need kids to sit still, shut up, pay attention, wait their turn, and basically be civilized And when a little boy can't do that, they get picked up really quickly. Little girls, on the other hand, are much more readily socialized to the expectations of the adults around them. We are much more keen to notice social relationships, and we internalize those expectations. So a little girl might be just as hyperactive as a boy, but she's going to suppress that and maybe just wiggle in her seat or tap her pin or bounce her knee or oftentimes start doodling. She will find some way to channel that physical hyperactivity so that she's not disruptive because a little girl doesn't want to be singled out and criticized. So that's one of the reasons. And then It starts the beginning of oftentimes a decades-long relationship with hiding, masking, covering up, and basically hoping not to get caught, what I used to call passing for normal. I was very proud of the fact that I passed for normal without realizing how much damage I was actually doing to myself in the process. I did not get diagnosed myself until just five years ago. Oh, wow. So it's a lot of what, and that was long after both sons and daughter, and not surprisingly, sons in elementary school, daughter in grad school. Wow. That's how long, and here I was, this is like, I should be embarrassed, honestly. Here I was, I think a very competent therapist, and I became very astute at identifying ADHD in my adult female clients. Who had come to me with diagnoses of anxiety, depression, eating disorders, addictions, just you know, uh, generalized problems, or or having a trauma history. So their behaviors and their symptoms were considered to be a result of that. But the longer I would be with them, I think you know, have you ever been assessed for ADHD? Because I think that's the driving force behind the eating disorder, or as we'll get into more spending problems impulsive spending and then, and then not looking at the bill. And I mean, we're going to get into that more, but just to wrap this part of it up, like girls are not identified early in life. One, because we're less physically hyperactive. We tend to be more inattentive and distractible. Rather than hyperactive and impulsive, two, because we're better at being socialized to the expectations of those around us. So we're better at masking. And frankly, if a little girl is quietly underachieving, teachers aren't concerned. They're only concerned about the kids that are so physically disruptive that other kids can't focus. So if a little girl's just dreamy, spacey, staring out the window, they just think she's slow, dumb. Doesn't have much potential, not a problem. And I have a problem with that because those are oftentimes some of the smartest kids in the class, but they're not being reached in a way that engages them.
0: Mm, that's such an important point. And I love everything that you just shared. I think that's so amazing. and all the differences between how little boys and little girls are treated under this kind of evaluation and it seems like from what I have heard, a lot of women get diagnosed later in life. They had no idea that this was even something to consider. And they just felt so much relief after getting the diagnosis because it explained so much. And, you know, it sounds kind of similar to what you were saying. I definitely don't think you need to be embarrassed. I mean, we all have our own things to to deal with and We all find out things in our own time as well. So, um, you know, how can ADHD interfere with someone's life?
1: Well, I think the number one way it interferes is in our self-concept and what we think we're capable of. I think, obviously, you know, we have all kinds of relationships in our lives, but the one relationship we have from beginning to end, no matter who we are, is the one we have with ourselves. And girls who are having trouble staying focused, having trouble concentrating, having difficulty sustaining their interest, sustaining their effort, they're easily distracted, they get off course easily and have a hard time getting back on course. They may make decisions impulsively, but label them intuitively. And then when they're called on it, they get defensive. There's typically... The relationship with self is injured from the very beginning because if the teacher says to you, why aren't you paying attention? Or I know you did your assignment. Where is it? Because this is a very common thing. The girl is trying so hard to do well. She'll do her homework. She'll read her assignment, even if she has to read it three times, but then she'll leave it at home or she'll forget the backpack at home and oftentimes mom is also ADHD so mom's not noticing all the text messages blowing up her phone to bring the backpack so the little girl has a gap between what she is capable of and what she can demonstrate she's capable of and so the questions start and usually they're not questions like how can we help they're questions like why didn't you where is what's wrong and especially with that tone of voice, we're going to immediately start thinking something's wrong with me and start attributing things like I'm dumb, I'm slow, I'm lazy, I'm crazy, I'm broken. And the way the brain works, those thoughts started early in life, basically get devoted to speed dial, autopilot, default setting, and they just keep showing up in her life. So what she'll try to do with her life who she'll try to associate with, what she'll go after is all going to be limited because she thinks she's lazy, crazy, stupid, and so forth. So that's number one. Number two, I would say other ways that interferes is the impulsivity, even if it's not as profound or as obvious as it is with males, girls tend to get in trouble with impulsivity when it comes to shopping, Sexual experiences, um, when they're put on the spot, let's say they're doing something they're not supposed to be doing. Could be anything. Scrolling through their, their phone when they're supposed to be doing their homework or staying up late when they're supposed to be in sleep, sleep or whatever. When they get put on the spot, what tends to happen is this you know, immediate anxious response. The mind goes blank. You can't think of anything. So, you just make something up, whatever comes to mind. It may be preposterous. It might be good. You might even become a very good liar. But what ends up happening is that there's now a separation between who you really are and who people think you are. And if your belief system is there's something wrong with me, I'm stupid, i'm I'm whatever, And you're not going to believe that people want to know the real you. So you're going to show them what you think they want. And this can lead to all kinds of behaviors from people pleasing poor boundaries, getting involved with unhealthy relationships, and even getting swept up in things from shoplifting to drug abuse. Most of the women I know who are identified with ADHD later in life have been in relationships of all kinds that were dysfunctional. And it was largely because they either had an impulsive choice to get drunk or high at a party, hook up with someone, and then think, Well, I had sex with this person that makes me a slut, unless I make him my boyfriend, then it's okay. (laughs) And of course, this is completely illogical, but when you're not really making good decisions and your self esteem is already impaired, you can see how that seems logical at the time. And so I think um, when you don't think you're capable of much, you're going to identify with people who are probably not that good for you you might want to be a doctor, but you go to beauty school instead because you don't think you can handle the rigor of a long academic career. It could be anything like that. But I'd say the most pervasive thing that I see is a lack of confidence and a belief that they can't do as much as other people can do. So they don't want to try because chronic disappointment is hard to take.
0: Yeah, for sure. That's so much. And thank you so much for shedding light on kind of other symptoms besides just being kind of, quote, hyperactive or having difficulty focusing. And kind of on that note, a lot of ADHD, at least from what I have seen, is kind of been like around this thing of, oh, people get so distracted, they can't focus. And people joke about it a lot these days because all of us, in a way, are very unfocused, especially right now with everything that's going on in the world. And so people are like, oh, yeah, do you really have ADHD or, you know, are you just a product of the Internet age? And
1: yeah, I'm
0: so curious, like what your response to that is, because I don't think that's the right thing that people should be saying. Similarly, I don't think people should be saying I'm so OCD when they have to organize something when it's just like a preference, you know. So I'm curious, what would you say to someone who, you know, is like, oh, maybe you're just you know, a product of the internet age and you you don't really have it. Like at what point does someone probably have it and they should get help?
1: Yeah. I'm going to deal with those separately. The first one is really that there are a lot of myth. This is hard to say myth, myths and misunderstandings. And um, because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I'm having an ADD moment. Okay. If you have ADHD, you're not having an ADD moment, like all of your moments are ADHD moments. I think, ADHD is a perplexing condition for so many reasons. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, most people with ADHD, even if they can't demonstrate it or can't demonstrate it consistently, are actually very intelligent. So when someone who appears to be intelligent does things that are kind of dumb, it's hard to explain. And a lot of people think, well, it's just a character flaw. I certainly thought all the things that I did that I couldn't account for with the IQ that I have were just character flaws. Like I'm just, you know, uh, I, I do stupid things. I'm, I'm a self-sabotager. That was one of my theories. But I think the myths that you hear the most are, uh, there's no such thing. That's just big pharma trying to sell meds, trying to sell drugs or this is normal behavior for kids and teachers just want to drug everybody so they can have control or parents just want to have control. There are a lot of people, like you said, say, oh, this is a product of the internet age. And, and it's absolutely true. If you saw the recent movie, is it social report or social network? I forget what social the exact one Social dilemma. Of course, that makes more sense. They, um, and this is a typical ADHD trait, the one you just experienced. I remember the movie. I remember the message. I remember part of the title, but I don't remember the whole title. It's almost like charades. You know, first word sounds like, what's the rest? And you know, if it's a popular thing, the other person will guess. I'm not ashamed of this anymore. Yeah, In fact, I'm drawing attention to it right now. But for many years, I was deeply ashamed.
0: Of my memory
1: lapses, now I just yeah. call it Swiss cheese brain. Swiss cheese brain. Some <laughs> stuff that. sticks and some, some stuff sticks to the cheese, and some stuff slides through the holes. That's what Swiss cheese brain is. And that's just my way of making light of it. But they either say it's big pharma. it doesn't exist. Everybody has that. And in the social dilemma, they said basically, we're all vying for your attention. All of these apps are by design, shredding our ability to delay gratification and sustain attention. So there is some truth to that. However, if you are listening and you think, I wonder if this is me, or I've always thought this might be me, or other people have suggested this could be me. You have had this since you were a little kid. It is noted in a variety of circumstances, not just one. So if you only have these traits in the classroom, but not at home, not in the community, not with friends, that's not what the issue is. And it doesn't go away when you become a teenager or an adult. It's a lifelong condition. You either learn how to manage it better, so it appears to go away, or you don't, or then you develop secondary problems like an eating disorder or substance problem. But I do not think it is a product of the internet age. As a matter of fact, this is something I study extensively. I think there have always been people with ADHD in every culture in every time period, but I think they've had different names. What is true is that people who are quick thinking, who can only focus for short periods of time, very fast decision makers, tend to be driven by impulse rather than rational, logical, and they're not long-term planners, they're in the moment. If you think about it, those are the entrepreneurs, those are the creatives, those are the inventors, those are the visionaries. Those are also the creatives and the shamans and the, the leaders of almost every nation because they were the ones who had the guts to do things that other people would think about and wouldn't do. We are risk takers. That's part of it. So I don't think, you know, I, I don't blame people for being ignorant, but there is so much information available now. And that's kind of part of what I do is I think my message is a little bit of a public service announcement because there is a lot of ignorance that's pretty pervasive.
0: Yeah, I love what you're doing here to help us break down myths around ADHD and really share what those symptoms are. And also I think you're being, you know, such a great empathetic voice for anyone listening who either has been diagnosed with ADHD or they think they might be, you know, with ADHD like it's just a thing that you're dealing with like it doesn't have to be this lifelong thing that, you know, is a kind of a stigma, but it's something that you can manage better and treat, correct?
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of people have this idea, Melanie, well, why would I, if I think I have ADHD, or I know I probably do, it is highly genetic. So if you have siblings who have ADHD, or a parent, and if you have both parents and a couple of siblings, uh, you might just be dealing with it better. It is on a spectrum from mild to moderate to severe. And ADHD often travels with Other mental conditions. So a lot of people with ADHD don't just have pure ADHD, they also have an anxiety disorder, or they also have a depressive disorder, or they also have OCD, or dyslexia, or some other learning disability. So I think there's a lot of overlap too. And, you know, just because you have these traits, doesn't mean you're diagnosable. In order to actually be diagnosed and treated, if that's something that you want to explore, you really have to have two things. You have to have an adequate number of the symptoms. I prefer to call them traits on the the Bible, the diagnostic manual from psychiatry, but you also have to have impairment, meaning there has to be some limitation in your functioning. And what I've learned over time is if you have been a really clever girl or boy and you have found your way into a career that is ideally suited to you and surrounded yourself with people that are ideally suited to you, you may not be impaired at all. If you are and you want to be diagnosed, the main reason would be so that you actually know it's not a character defect. It's actually the way your brain is wired and organized and, and how it responds. It's kind of like you thought you had a PC, you actually have a Mac. You just <laughs> have to Operated a little bit differently, but you can do just as much as anyone else. You don't need to be medicated, but you do need a diagnosis if you want to be medicated. Full disclosure, Melanie, I am medicated. I do take ADHD medication. I have for the last five years since I was diagnosed. And, um, but I'm actually not on it today, just so you know. So oh, it's not how you feel. I, you know, I, I needed to exercise right before this call. So this brings me to the second issue. It's like, well, okay, so let's just say somebody listening says, okay, I probably am. All right, great, whatever. Um, Why do I need to know? Two reasons. If you want to try medication, you can try a dose of medication. You can try it one time. You like the way it affects you? Great, stick with it. If you don't, stop it. You don't have to stay on it. A lot of people use it during their school hours or their work hours, but not on their weekends. I mean, there's a ton of flexibility. What the medication does is helps you sustain your focus. You're less distractible. You're less likely to get pulled in other directions because you suddenly think of something else or if there's an interruption, you could get back to work quicker and easier. But if you haven't yet learned why you're distracted to begin with, and if you haven't set your environment up and your habits up and your lifestyle up so that you're focusing on the right thing, medication may not be so good because you're just going to be focused longer at the wrong thing. It just helps you sustain your focus. But if you haven't yet figured out what you want to be focused on, you're just going to sit there longer at your video games.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing um, your story about medication. I definitely think it's important to shed light on that. And, you know, there are people that choose to be on medication and others that do not. I am also on antidepressants and anti anxiety medication, which I've talked about before in the podcast. And um, actually, I should probably do a whole episode on that because I was on it for, you know, six years as a teenager. And then I had a whole 10 year period where I was without medication and then. Mm. A few years ago needed to go back because there's a lot of shifts in my life and I, I just really needed it. And medication became a lifesaver when I was feeling a lot of impending gloom. So, you know, I just wanted to share that medication can be really helpful for people. I think obviously it's a personal experience for everyone. And I appreciate you sharing kind of how it's helped you and, and that you've been on it.
1: Well, and I mentioned um, that I am not on it today because the pharmacy didn't get the prescription in time. And I'm actually going to be going a little bit after this interview to go pick it up because it finally came in. But am I like, you know, up the tree if I don't have the medication on a on date? No. Um, a really good hack for someone who has ADHD, especially because, yeah, you know, you're being interviewed. It's a little bit exciting, a mm-hmm. um, little bit anxiety provoking. So How do I drain the swamp on a day that I'm not on medication? I have a Peloton. I was just on the bike for 45 minutes, took a shower, and here I am. Exercise is the number one thing to help people with ADHD who either can't take meds or don't want to. So, and I appreciate you sharing about your anxiety and depression. I don't think I've ever met a woman who hasn't had some experience with anti-anxiety or antidepressant medications these days.
0: Yeah, it's so common. And, you know, I think there's so much to talk about there. There's a stigma with medication. Also, I definitely think that sometimes medication is overprescribed. I also think psychiatry in general needs to be more holistic. You know, we can't just be assigning pills for certain symptoms and then hoping to fix everything. And that's something I definitely experienced the first time I was on medication as a teenager. You know, I would mention all of these symptoms, and suddenly I would just have a pill for each of the symptoms. And looking back, it's really awful. <laughs> but recently, in the past couple of years, I had a better, more holistic psychiatrist who listened to my concerns, got me on the right medication for what I was dealing with, and you know, definitely wanted to make sure that we fleshed out the other areas of my life that were actually part of the root cause of me having this extremely dark period.
1: Well, it's so tempting, Melanie, to think, I mean, who doesn't want the magic pill? You know, and when I am assessing somebody for whether they are ready to be a coaching client with me, it's one of the things I look for because, you know, it's very tempting when you don't feel well, when life is so much harder than it needs to be. And it's hard enough right now, especially. Um if somebody offers you a pill and says, you just have to take this every day, you're going to feel so much better. You won't recognize yourself. Like That sounds awesome. But even when an antidepressant works, it's only about 30% of the potential improvement that other holistic methods can gain you. So I, I feel badly when physicians, you know, they're not being compensated well enough through insurance companies to be able to give you the time to actually say, you know, if you take this antidepressant and you exercise and you do a gratitude journal, now you're close to 100%. They just give you the prescription. They got to get on to the next person. So,
0: yeah, so much that we need to change in healthcare and especially psychiatry, but that is definitely another episode. So, you know, this is the Mental Health and Wealth Show. So I definitely wanted to dive into the hot topic of money. And I read that people with ADHD are more likely to go into debt and impulsively spend. So what are some steps that people with ADHD can take to improve their relationship with money, manage their money, and hopefully avoid debt?
1: What's really common, Melanie, is um, because of the impulsivity, Um, Like a a boy, a teenage boy might have, you know, feel jealous of some other guy and just want to punch him or start a fight with him or something. But if a girl has an impulse to, she's in a store, she's in, let's say she's in Sephora with her friend and her friend is buying, you know, a bunch of eyelash extensions and stuff. And she knows she doesn't have the money. She might just like stick it in her pocket. She's not a bad person she got an urge and she did it. Now, if she's got a credit card account or access to someone else's credit card account and my god, online shopping. I'm glad I did not grow up with online shopping. <laughs> it's so easy. It's so I mean on your phone, on your laptop and and if you've even looked at something, then that image just starts stalking you it's on every single again and again and again. It's crazy. So that the reality is, yes, we are all being targeted in ways that you really have to have a lot of willpower. But everything I think starts with self-awareness. So if you are impulsive with money, you're an impulsive spender. You see it, you want it, you get it. You don't hit the pause button and think, is this in the budget? Do I really need it? And I suggest to people, hey, listen, maybe you can have it. Just wait. It's the exact same technique that people use to help folks who want to lose weight, stop smoking, or any other habit that has impulsive and compulsive traits. So I will suggest to a client, if let's say their their issue is they impulsively shop online when they're bored or lonely. Those are usually big triggers. So it could be when they're stressed, when they're angry. For some people, those are the triggers. For most, it's when they're bored or when they're lonely. They're just kind of mindlessly scrolling because it's very pleasant. And I should say that one of the major chemical issues behind ADHD is it's a dopamine deficiency disorder. Mm. There's a dysregulation of dopamine. So our brains may make the same amount of dopamine as other brains, but we don't it doesn't upregulate as easily. So we are very prone to doing things that give us a little squirt of dopamine and then doing something else that gives us a squirt of dopamine and something else. What are the behaviors that give us that very reliable, quick hit of dopamine? Sex, food, drugs, drink, shop. Like the things, it just, they're feel goods. So all the feel goods they're quick, they're easy. And like, you could literally shop any time of the day or not. You used to have to go to the freaking mall when it was open. Now you can be shopping at any time. So I think just a understanding that about yourself without shame, without blame, without self-judgment, just these, these products are designed to hook us. So, You don't have a defective character. You're not weak. You don't have an addictive personality. There's nothing wrong with you. You You're responding as a normal human to impulses that are designed to affect you in the way that they are. But you're going to get in a heap of trouble with death if you don't do what you can to resist. So I just suggest you see something, you want it, go ahead and put it in the cart. It's okay. It's not going anywhere. Just don't hit by. Walk away. You can come back. What I suggest, you know, in the beginning, sometimes you just have to wait an hour, but stretch it out to a day, stretch it out to a week. What I've learned with myself is when something seems irresistible to me, I put it in the cart and I come back two or three days later. If I want it just as much, I'll say, okay, noted, wait a couple more days. But most of the time, Melanie, I want it just a little bit less. And if I leave it in the cart three days later, I want it less. It was the impulse to acquire, not the item. And so Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't have to buy it. I just satisfied that urge. I scratched the itch by putting it in my cart. And so, and sometimes you have to get up and move right after you do that, because it's like your brain is anticipating the reward, but it's not quite as satisfying. So the best thing when your brain chemistry is like, oh, so close. I almost got that. Feel good. Get up and move. Do something physical. Do a couple sit-ups. Do a couple push-ups. Do your hula hoop. Walk out the door. Play with your dog. Distract yourself with something physical. It's the quickest way to kind of flush the chemistry of those urges out of your brain. Have you ever heard this technique before?
0: I haven't. This is great. I love it. I think that's so important to have delayed gratification and to actually practice it, you know, putting something in your cart and then waiting a few days for sure.
1: Mm -hmm. And it might be too hard to wait a few days the first time. You might have to wait an hour. But, you know, I think the other issue with respect to debt and impulsive spending for people with ADHD, there's so much shame involved You know, Mm -hmm. when you consider this person thinks there's something wrong with me, I have an addictive personality, I can't control myself, I'm crazy, I'm out of control, whatever, they don't realize that there's nothing wrong with them, but they do need to be aware so they can manage things better. So I think the other thing that happens is when there's a sort of impulsive spending habit, then the bill comes. Or if they have online bills, they don't open that email Mm. because- it's like the anticipation of feeling shame. So like you spend, 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 but you're, you're just enjoying the dopamine hit of putting it in the cart, clicking buy, and then all these boxes come to the door. If you've been at home for nine months, like most of us, <laughs> like it is literally the highlight of your day to see the UPS or the FedEx truck pull up outside. It's
0: exciting. Oh my gosh, something new, something to look forward right? to.
1: It's like Christmas on demand, you know? So all of a sudden, here's the truck, here's the box. Lots of people don't even remember what they bought because (laughs) it's, it's the urge that they're satisfying. And then they, they, and they're, Oh crap. No, I don't, I know what to do with this. So lots of times there's like this secondary avoidance. I don't want to open that bill. I don't want to look at my account balance because I've been feeling out of control. Just like if you had an eating disorder and you just went on a 10,000 calorie binge, you really don't want to look at all those empty packages and start calculating. You just kind of want to, la, 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 la you know, let's forget about this. But that's where the real problem starts, and it's the avoidance. So I think just understanding so many people have this issue and if you can learn some skills for delaying gratification and start to address the avoidance, like you did. I mean, you had what, $18,000, $180,000? How many? I know it had a 80, one in an eight.
0: $81,000 in student loan debt I paid so, off. Yeah, I knew there was a one in an eight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It takes a lot to get out of debt. And I think getting over that avoidance is so key. I was definitely in denial as well when I first Graduated from NYU, I like created a mint.com account and synced up all my accounts. And then, like, the next day, I was like, I can't take this. And I deleted the whole account because I didn't want to see the yes. numbers. Like, right. That is something I talk about in my book that paying off debt is a lot like the stages of grief and denial is definitely up there for a lot of people in the beginning. And so, I think, you know, kind of getting over that avoidance, like you speak of, and then also dealing with the shame you know, I would say that is the number one emotion that I hear from people, you know, in my seven years of writing about personal finance and the year that I've had this podcast, that's the most common emotion that people experience with all of these things. And the shame, I think, comes because no one's talking about these issues as if they're normal. And so that's what I'm hoping to do with this podcast is break down the taboos and the barriers, because these are just things that we experience. These are things that we just go through. We all have our different, you know, platters of issues that we're dealt with. Like maybe you don't have uh, this thing, but you have a different thing. We all, we all have something that we are dealing with. So I think we need to kind of talk about it in a different light. And I really appreciate you sharing that. So kind of moving to the next question, what are some cost effective ways that people with ADHD can manage it or get support?
1: Well, the first thing I would suggest is uh, getting their hands, well, before they even buy a book, okay, if we want to do total, you know, DIY no cost, there's some really, really excellent podcasts out there. And I'll be sure to send them to you. You can link them up in the show notes. There are a number of podcasts, including ones that are by ADHD coaches. And uh, one, a very popular one is ADHD Rewired with Eric Tivers. He is a licensed therapist like myself and a coach. So um, listen to the experts, listen to the people sharing their personal stories. The more you start to hear other people Who are like-minded and like-brained, you realize I'm not alone and I am not broken either. There are lots of people out there just like me. I just thought I was an F up, right? So there's that podcast. Um, And you can also certainly, if you like me, you like the way I talk and and the way I present things, uh, my podcast is The Driven Woman. I don't have ADHD in the title because most women who have it don't know it. And I didn't want to be exclusive in that way. But beyond podcasts, I also think the first book that I often recommend to people is by Ned Halliwell, and it's called Delivered from Distraction. Ned Halliwell is the OG in the ADHD space. He is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist in his late 60s. He has been an expert in ADHD for decades, and he's written like 20 books. He has ADHD and dyslexia, by the way. So no reason... No reason that we can't be successful, but you kind of have to know what you're dealing with. So delivered from distraction. And then there's a lot of great free advice from, you know, coaching groups. Uh, I can give you links to all of those. So I think there's just a lot of really good internet um, based information and a lot of Facebook groups that you can join um, that have anywhere from 10 people to 10,000 people.
0: Oh, I love that! Thank you so much for sharing those resources. I think it's so important for people to explore these more cost-effective options in the beginning. And you know, kind of what would be like a mid-tier option for someone that wants to get support. You know, is is it therapy? Is it medication?
1: I would say so. If we go from low to high, the first level would be free, obviously, right? Free always fits. And those are the podcasts, the blogs, and the websites and the Facebook groups. Then um, get the book, sort of identify yourself. Knowledge is power. So don't turn yourself over to any expert, psychiatrist, therapist, or coach before you have done your own self-awareness check, because you might not get an accurate diagnosis from a qualified professional. There's been plenty of people walking around for decades with the wrong diagnosis, including myself. So um, I'd say, you know, be aware. So once you get the book, then the next level might be a group coaching program. Most qualified ADHD coaches um, do online work and a group program is always more cost effective than one-on-one. But if you find that you either have the resources or you believe that your specific issues are best treated in a one-on-one setting where you really don't need to be involved with other people's stuff or focusing on their issues because ADHD affects different people in different ways. And when you're part of a group, you kind of have to move at the pace that most people in the group are, and you may have different needs. You can certainly hire a one-on-one coach like myself. I should also mention when you say either therapy or coaching, I think coaching is generally the better approach. If you have uncomplicated ADHD, meaning, you know, this is what it is. And you know that you need to basically change your thinking about it, change your mindset, but also change your habits and your systems in your life. Um, You'll do very well with an ADHD coach. However, if you also have an eating disorder, an addictive disorder, or abuse, or trauma history that you have not worked through with a professional, I think the better bet is therapy. And it's well worth the effort to really look for a therapist who does have experience in ADHD, because a lot of them don't.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for talking about that. You actually just kind of glossed over my next question is, you know, that you do coach women with ADHD. And, you know, I was curious about the differences between coaching and therapy. And I know you kind of just said, um, kind of mentioned the differences, but do you have anything else to add about, you know, this is definitely someone who should go to a therapist and who is your ideal client, who should be working with you as a coach?
1: Sure. Absolutely. Thank you for asking that. I would say, you know, therapy is, and sometimes it's, you should see a therapist and you should see a coach, different people. And sometimes it's therapy first and then coaching. A lot of people will want to hire a coach instead of a therapist, because unfortunately, even though it's 2021, therapy is still stigmatizing, but coaching is not. So there are a lot of people who will say, well, I just want to coach. An ethical coach, a coach who has any awareness of mental health, should recognize when they're dealing with someone whose issues are beyond the scope of coaching and refer to a qualified therapist. But most coaches don't have a mental health background. So they may be kind of mucking around in something that really should require a therapist. But I'd say the sort of the big categories are abuse, trauma, eating disorders, and addictions. Those folks, really should at least be assessed by a therapist, because the potential for really, really, really important things to not be addressed in coaching means that their suffering continues. And what I think the worst possible outcome is, you've been struggling along, you decide, you know what, I need to address this, you hire a coach, and you start working with the coach. But you have issues that should have been addressed in therapy. So you do make progress but you're still really struggling and you think, well, I guess this is as good as it gets. That to me is the most unfortunate outcome because therapy is meant for healing. Coaching is more for growth. So I think you need to heal before you can grow. Otherwise your growth will eventually be limited by unresolved issues that need to be healed first. Sometimes people just don't wanna go there um, they don't want to go back to the past and they'll say, look, can we just focus on now? But you you've experienced depression and anxiety. You know how the past has a sneaky way of following you wherever you go and sneaking up it's and tapping there. you on the shoulder. <laughs> here I am. You know, Hi, I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> riding, riding shotgun. You know, mm-hmm. it's like here again, you know. So what's really cool about the field of therapy, Melanie, I think is that, you know, unlike back in the days when I was trained, um, therapists did not speak about their personal life in the traditional model. Now therapists are much more open and much more likely to share who they are. So now there are, you know, gay and lesbian focused therapists. There are addictions therapists who own up to their own addiction and people like me who have ADHD and use that as part of how I work, because wouldn't you rather work with someone who actually knows what it's like To deal with what you're dealing with instead of someone who learned about it in grad school. So I think, you know, a a competent coach should rule it out. But if you have depression, if you have serious anxiety, and if you are self medicating in any way, I think that's a good sign to check in with a therapist first.
0: Love that. Actually, uh, a life coach that I follow, Natalie Bacon, I remember she said that therapy is for going from dysfunction to function, like functional, and coaching is really kind of getting you to extraordinary, which I kind of love that description because kind of what you were mentioning, I do feel like therapy is a space where we kind of get rid of those dysfunctional patterns. We acknowledge these systems that we're in that we might might not even realize how they're affecting our lives and that's where we can do the deep healing and then coaching is really like i am whole i am healed i want to get to the next level and i want someone who will be my cheerleader who can help me get to the next level and be there for me throughout this journey
1: It's, I think of coaching and I I use similar, I haven't heard Natalie's approach before, but what people have been asking me for years, what's the difference between therapy and coaching because I've been and done both. And I say, okay, uh, therapy will take you from terrible to tolerable or from tolerable to good. But if you're already good and you want to work towards great, you need a coach. So it's, it's, I realize that she's saying a similar thing in different words, but, but I think that um, a lot of the people that end up hiring me have had therapy before and uh, worked through therapy. And lots of times people are afraid to leave therapy because they think it's what's keeping them functional. They're kind of almost afraid to like break up with your therapist. And I say, if you've reached a point where you're like, okay, I've done my healing. I don't have open wounds. I have some scar tissue, but I have no open wounds. Um, but is this really all there is? I feel like there should be more. I want more. I think that's a good signal that it's time for coaching because you're right. Coaching really is about leveling up.
0: I love that. This has been such a great episode and you've shared so much wonderful information on women and ADHD and the difference between coaching and therapy. Where can people find you?
1: Well, I have a funky spelling. So if you spell my name, D-I-A-N-E, you won't find me. Um, It's Diane Wingert Coaching, which is D-I-A-N-N. And Wingert is W-I-N-G-E-R-T. And I'll give you links to my socials and to my podcast, The Driven Woman.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much for being on the show. I super appreciate you sharing your expertise and insight.
1: I really enjoyed it, Melanie. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much for listening
0: to the Mental Health and Wealth Show. Want more content and support? Sign up for the Mental Hump newsletter and get our free Mental Health and Money Inventory Worksheet. You can sign up at mentalhealthandwealth.com and also check out our other blog posts and podcast episodes. Also, we host a Mental Health and Wealth Hangout every other Thursday over Zoom at 5 p.m. Pacific to chat about all things money and mental health. The best part, it is free. If you'd like to support the podcast, it would mean so much to me if you left a review and you can also support me at ko-fi.com forward slash Melanie Lockhart. And lastly, I want to remind you to do something for yourself to take care of your mental health and wealth.